You are listening to the Macro Trading Floor. This episode is brought to you by Saxo Bank. Good evening from Ischia, just outside of Naples in Italy. I'm having a bit of uh, espresso this uh, this evening. Unfortunately, with a bit of milk in it, uh, I know my colleague Alfonso will have something to say about this. This is Andreas Steno speaking, by the way. <laughs> no, you're going to be running the show alone, mate. Are you kidding me? It's 9 p.m. You put milk in the, in the espresso. Oh, my God. Oh my God. I, yeah. I mean, you're, you're even in Ischia, like maybe, what, 50 kilometers from my hometown. If you would say this thing out loud there, you would have serious issues, man. You know that? <laughs> Just yeah, yeah. I, I haven't, I haven't dared ordering an espresso with milk on a restaurant yet. So <laughs> you've a, told me a, not to. <laughs> please, please keep it that way. A few more days you can survive with your, with your Viking approach to life, <laughs> drinking milk at 9 p.m. Anyway, this is a, a macro show. We try to make it one, Andreas. I've mm. been to London um, recently, which actually, uh, it's basically, a, how can I say, uh, like the good old days, you know, you go there and you meet macro hedge funds. They are now clients in some cases. It was fun, I have to say. Um, and you know, you, you, it's always curious. These guys have very different views sometimes. Of course, it makes a market of different views. And um, I had, so let me summarize what, let's say, the top three influential macro funds told me. And so one guy told me U.S. unemployment rate will go above 7% by the end of 2023. That's quite out of consensus, I should say. The other told me, what the heck are you talking about? Bond volatility is about to calm down. And as it calms down, market makers can quote tighter, institutions can take more risks because the base of the pyramid you know, stabilizes a bit. And if you, you know, basically plot bond vol against equity valuations, you see quite a tight correlation, which is justified by macro. So he feels pretty much okay with taking some long risks from here. And yeah, the other lady told me that China is going to devalue 2016 on steroids, which is not really on everybody's radar. We've seen quite an orderly devaluation so far, like in Japan, but nothing ridiculous. So what do you make of those three theories? Uh, wow. <laughs> let, let me try and address them um, one at a time. I, I think one of the ways to sort of assess the unemployment rate uh, on a forward-looking basis in the U.S. is to look at what, what's going on live in the housing market. Um, I think the housing market is one of the best gauges of upcoming trends in the labor market. Uh, and I think a chart sort of made the rounds both on social media but also um, between hedge funds this week uh, with the correlation between the unemployment rate um, and one of the key uh, sentiment gauges for the um, US housing market. Uh, so if you look at the home builder sentiment relative to the unemployment rate, you usually get a, a, a pretty decent correlation if you lack the time series by, I think it's between nine and 10 months, uh, I, I can look it up, uh, but I, I mean, that correlation clearly points towards higher unemployment in, say, two, three quarters from now. Uh, and it, it looks kind of violent um, if you look at the spot developments in, in, the, um, in the housing market. Uh, so I tend to agree with that view. Um, I think it's likely that we will see rising unemployment at least. And I think it, it, it could turn out to be a pretty violent rise in unemployment once we get on the other side of New Year's. It's certainly not a story for this quarter. Um, when, when it comes to the 
dollar versus the Chinese yuan. Um, I mean, I, I've been on the long side of that trade basically throughout the year um, in various proxies, uh, and I stick to that view. Um, reason being that China is nowhere near ending the permanent lockdowns. Uh, I think that's important for that view. Uh, and it seems to me as if China is deliberately not ending these lockdowns because it's a way of containing inflation, uh, given the inflationary pressures that we see elsewhere. Uh, that's, of course, a tinfoil hat theory, uh, but uh, I, I think it kind of makes sense if you're an economic advisor in a dictatorship, uh, because then you can essentially contain inflation that way. Uh, that leads me um, to, to the question on whether they could devalue 2016 on steroids, as you said. Um, I wouldn't rule that out. Um, I mean, lately, if you look at the actual um, um, sort of steps taken by the People's Bank of China, they've actually tried, tried to defend the Chinese yuan um, mm -hmm. pretty clearly by the fixing, yeah. uh, but also backed it up by uh, uh, direct interventions uh, around the fixing. So, I mean, is that an early warning signal? Um, Usually not. It's rather a signal that they actually try and contain the pressure and try to sort of dampen the momentum in the way that the Chinese yeah. yuan is weakening. Uh, so it is kind of a grace warning event if they actually allow the devaluation to happen by fixing overnight as they did in 2016, right? Uh, so I wouldn't rule it out. At least I like the direction <laughs> of, of, of that view as well. When it comes to, to bunt volatility, um, well, that's obviously the key question for everyone uh, and i mean let's get back to that inflation debate because that's essentially what what's needed to answer that question uh, and i posted a new blog this week on inflation developments in the u.s and i mean i have probably 25 models on inflation in the u.s and i only have one model pointing upwards that's on rent of shelter um the 24 um, other models they point down but still not to convincing levels um, like two, two or three percent they still point to like four or five percent inflation yeah. so I mean bond volatility I still think it's at least it's at least it's going to be higher than usual wow what a decent take and analysis on all of those Andreas um, so let me give some more color on what happened during those meetings. I mean, why these people really think what they think, right? So we can debate for a second. So the guy that said that unemployment rate is going to 7 plus percent basically is looking at the same thing. So, and he gave me some numbers that so we looked at them together. For the U.S. to keep unemployment rate stable, Andreas, it's because of labor force growth. You need to add 90 to 100K jobs net per month. And then you're going to get roughly stable unemployment rate, roughly. Okay, so he says, look, Alf, um, the base case or the best the bull case for the housing market is that there are no new marginal buyers. They're priced out of the market and the sellers just hold. They try to not sell as long as possible. But that means a total freeze, Andreas, which means that all housing related jobs will be under quite a lot of pressure. And he says, if only 10% of these real estate jobs, and now think of all these frothy jobs created in 2021, realtors popping up like there's no tomorrow, like mushrooms, et cetera, et cetera. If all these frothy jobs, only those, and even a portion of those are taken out, it basically means that you're going to be having, because these jobs are so large, there are roughly 12 to 13 million housing-related jobs in the U.S. If only a small portion of those are taken out of the equation, you end up with negative non-farm payrolls. And that justifies a bit 
your um, chart. I actually, by the way, put the very same chart into this piece of the macro compass. Yeah, if you plot an NAHB against unemployment rate lag, it looks very well, but there is a reason why. I mean, the housing market takes 20% of total U.S. employment roughly, and it's a leading sector of the economy. So that's basically his thesis, which is an interesting one. It tends to make me think that the, house, the, the labor market weakness isn't really well priced in yet. No. And then we have the, the guy that said, oh, you want to say something? Go ahead. Yeah, I, I want to say something on the uh, employment in the U.S. Um, because the pushback that I receive every time I try to tell people that the unemployment rate will rise is that the amount of job openings is three times the peak of 2008. So how come um, a rising unemployment rate could be a base case for next year with that amount of job openings? My answer is that I feel um, more and more certain that we have loads of double counting in that job openings number due to the remote trend. Um, so let me try and, and explain what I mean. Um, if you look at the job openings uh, across various states right now, it's pretty um, clear that the same job as a front-end developer, back-end developer, is being posted in Miami, in New York, in Los Angeles. Um, Wall Street Journal called me today and asked me to try and quantify this. Uh, it's very tricky, but uh, we're we're web, web scraping various sites right now, and we are onto something. I can I can guarantee you that. Uh, the issue is that um, companies they fill in this survey with job openings themselves to the BLS in the U.S. But I think that HR departments they have a tendency to just look at the amount of openings that they have on various portals, just pool them, and then send the survey back. Uh, so. Once they take one job down, if they start doing that, then they will probably take four jobs down, yeah, or three, whatever. Uh, so it could f it could fall off a cliff, basically, that measure. That's my point. Yeah, it's a very fair point, Andreas. Um, and I would be interested to see what the results of, the, of that analysis is. But I've already read um, elsewhere some theories being popped up. If they're data-backed, it's even better. So let's mm -hmm. see if you can pop something up there. Um, the China story, that was also very interesting because this lady is uh, basically a monetary plumbing expert, is a bit of a money nerd like me. She always wants to talk about money and what form of money and what dollar shortages, etc. And so we went through a bit the situation and yeah, so we all know about the euro dollar story and if dollars are not organically flowing towards certain places, it's going to be a problem if those places are leveraged in dollars because they can't service these liabilities, etc., etc. And she was saying, look, I mean, as long as it's idiosyncratic risks happening first at the fringes. We have seen Turkey, for example. Then we have seen moving it to the core, like the UK pension fund. The Fed doesn't have a mandate and doesn't want to, by the way, intervene at this stage. So it's either a death by a thousand cuts, these idiosyncratic risks popping up somewhere, or she says, you know, is it going to be a systemic risk anywhere? But people say that the bond market doesn't work. But the, I don't know what it means. I mean, it's just market makers quoting people wider because volatility is higher. The repo market is functioning. So there is some dysfunctionality in the treasury market, but it's a function of higher volatility, not of some serious problem, some serious malfunctioning of the system. So she says, look, if it's going to be another idiosyncratic risk, where is, it, where is that going to be? Where is that the most underpriced? And she has the feeling that China actually might have, after the, the Politburo meeting, to pull the trigger and actually devalue more aggressively, which is... An interesting theory, I would say. Mm. And last is the bond volatility guy who basically is a ball expert. Um, and he's, he, pointed, he asked a question. I'm going to ask this to you now. Okay, so he says, Alf, say that the Fed is at 4.5% by December this year. It's all basically a done deal or almost a done deal. 
If I ask you, what is the probability that the Fed is going to be at six and a half or at two and a half by the end of 2023? So next year, you have plus 200, minus 200 as probabilities you need to attach. What would be these probabilities, Andreas? In, in your head, then I'll tell you what the market is pricing. I'd, I'd say um, 30, 70 to the downside. So I, I think so, it's more likely that they are two and a half. Okay. So you think that the market should overprice the, the Fed at or below two and a half percent? Should assign more probability to that yeah. than a probability the Fed goes to 7% or whatever? Yeah. Okay. So the market is pricing an 11% chance of both events. Same tail risk, left hand, mm. right hand. Okay. So, and he said, I, I, I told him, oh, that's interesting when I looked at market pricing with him, because he says, when the Fed has been at that point, tight enough, one can argue, at least at four and a half, for long enough, I mean, it has been tighter than any estimate of neutral for like six to nine months at that point, minimum, as you had towards December, 2023, you should probably attach a higher probability to, the, to that left tail that the Fed actually goes down to two and a half because it might break something. The labor market might mm. break. The real estate market might break. And that fatness of these tails isn't really uh, priced differently between the left tail and the right tail, which is a, which is a very interesting observation. It has a lot to do with, with people, he says, applying the same framework that they've been applying for the last 10 years. So they think linearly. They don't, mm. he, he says, they don't think in convex steps, like, you know, if this happens, what will be the reaction of the Fed? Probably more than linear, which is an interesting point, and it talks to bond volatility and, and, and equity valuations, but enough, uh, enough uh, nerdness, I would say, with all this ball stuff. Yeah, but I, I mean, it fits perfectly to the discussion that we will have with our guest of the week, because we're going to talk about the regime change in correlations, potentially, at least. So let's bring him on the floor. It's now a great pleasure to introduce the guest of the week at the macro trading floor. And this week we want to announce Michael Guyatt, the portfolio manager at Tidal Financial Group. Welcome to the trading floor, Michael. Always a pleasure. Good to see you both. Michael, it's been a horrendous year. I think you said exactly that to us just before we went on air here. Uh, correlations have broken down across assets compared to the um, financial regime that we've been in for quite a while. What do you make of this correlation breakdown? Okay, so let's take a step back. Why has this year been hell? As I started saying back in March, April. Because I could see back then that treasuries were not responding to stock market volatility, right? Treasuries as the quote-unquote safe haven risk-off asset. As you know, my pinned tweet at Lee Lagaport, I show in major drawdowns for equities, the top 20 biggest declines for stocks going back to 1961. When you have a big decline for stocks, 10 out of those 20 large drawdowns, treasuries earned you positive return. Nine out of those 20 uh, big drawdowns in stocks, treasuries, long-duration treasuries were down a lot less. This is the one time in history where long-duration treasuries, instead of being the beneficiary of stock market volatility, are the source of stock market volatility. Okay, so that's, that's hell. Now, look, correlations always change. The question is, does causation change when correlation changes? Right? Because if it doesn't, then you can still rely, to some extent, on history as long as causations remain intact. Now, a lot of people will say they got the call right that stocks and bonds would lose money. Okay, 
God bless those that got that quote-unquote call right. Let me tell you something. I've heard that for four or five years. People were saying that forever, this idea that 60-40 is dead. Saying something will happen is different than identifying how it happens, the path and interaction, right? When you look at the number of weeks that the S&P has lost money as a percentage of the year, 64% of this year, the S&P has lost money using weekly data. That only other time that happened was 1931. That's a pretty nasty sequence and path of stock market movement as a standalone. Oh, and then by the way, long duration treasuries, which have had a bigger drawdown than equities on a weekly loss basis have lost uh, 70 some odd percent of the year, most ever in history. So here I am with my funds, my approach, rotating risk on, risk off equities, treasuries based on historical relationships. The correlation clearly is not holding in terms of the inverse correlation during the flight to safety moment. And people suddenly say, well, your approach sucks. This whole thing's not working, but we're in an anomaly. The difference between me and Michael Burry is that he calls himself Cassandra, but Cassandra could change, uh, could not change uh, the outcome of the future. He can because he's a discretionary trader. He saw this coming and he bet against treasuries. God bless him. When you're running a prospectus, two prospectus, and you're running a rules-based approach, the Cassandra in this case really was me. I could see it coming. I could see it happening. I couldn't do anything about it because that's how running a fund like this works. Very clear, Michael. And it makes me think about um, correlation changes and shall I say regime changes. That's a very heavy word to use in finance, very expensive one for people who have called for a regime change for decades. So shall we try and zoom into actually the reasons why, as you said, treasuries are driving equity markets down? Like, can we consider these being a regime change or is it just a flash in the pan? What's your medium term view about these dynamics? So you're hitting on something which is important, which is that another way of saying regime change is this time it's different. That's why you have to be really careful with these kind of things that people, I think, frame things under. We've never seen anything like this. I get it. You can make the argument that this is a little bit like 1940s. Okay, you had also a war then, right? A world war. And you had outright yield curve control. We actually don't know what this environment is going to end up looking like except with hindsight. And it could be a totally anomalous environment. Now, look, I get it. It makes sense, obviously, because the starting yield was so low that treasuries and bonds were due to sell off and to respond to higher inflationary pressure. No disagreements. But again, I go back to the way that it happened is what's so abnormal. Here's the problem. People seem to think that bonds are as important as stocks. They're not. They're infinitely more important than stocks. The entire financial system is predicated not on short rates, but based on long duration rates. Okay, the safe collateral is government debt. Why? Because the government owns our ship through taxation. Why are treasuries the, the pristine collateral? Because they own us. They can tax to pay it off, at least in theory. And never mind the fact that you can print money to pay off those liabilities. So when you are in an environment where bonds, treasuries, and government debt in particular, like we're seeing with gilts too, are acting more volatile, as I've said, jokingly but not jokingly, more volatile than penny stocks, that's got to really make you wonder about everything else around it. It's not one of those things where you can take it in isolation. Look, in 2011, when S&P downgraded the credit quality of the U.S. government from AAA to AA plus, right? You would have thought that would have meant yields would rise, right? Because basically S&P as a rating agency is saying that the credit quality is worse, so there's got to be a premium for that. 
right, on, on, on yield. What was the response? Yields collapsed on the long end. Stocks collapsed. Risk on, risk off. Why? Because if the U.S. government is unable to pay off its debt, everything else around it, all of us, have to pay it off for them. So it's riskier to us than the U.S. government. So we're in a really strange, like, upside-down world where people seem to think that what's happening in the bond market is not only to be expected, but is perfectly fine. It's not. It is very cataclysmic if this volatility continues. Because how in the world can you have a functioning market if the baseline isn't functioning? Yeah. Michael, if, if we look a bit ahead and, and try and pinpoint um, the changes needed in the market to sort of restore the correlations that we've seen between equities and treasuries over the past decade or so, what's needed to bring back that inverse correlation? Okay, so a couple of things. First, the, the inverse correlation was strongest post-1998. Prior to that, Treasury still acted as a risk-off safe haven, but they were down less. So it still worked from a portfolio management perspective. That's why even the argument that this is all because of the 40-year the bond bull market is not true. Part of that bond bull market is because of in, in, uh, efficiencies right, that shifted the yield curve. But even prior to the 40-year bond bull market start in the 70s, during high volatility pulses for equities, Treasuries still were a better place to be for a moment in time. Okay, now the question is how do you resolve, how do you get back to sort of the historical way that things will work? At some point, this has to stop in terms of the volatility in government bonds, because if it doesn't, everything stops. Okay, now I know that sounds really dramatic, but I've made that point multiple times on Twitter, and I've seen this many times, guys, in my career, where it looks like it's an Armageddon type of situation. I believe that if this bond market volatility doesn't stop, it's the end of everything. The Fed will not be able to control it if at a certain point there's a point of no return. And if that's the case, nothing will matter. Uh, you think a bank run in 08 uh, was bad? Forget about it when it comes to what you're seeing with government liabilities. Okay. Now, if I'm right in that very extreme view that it's the end of the world if this bond market volatility continues, well, then you can't make money off of it. It's possible. Because I'd argue your money's worthless at that point. Might as well, you know, again, buy guns and butter, right? Because it's the end of the world. So if that's the case, my argument is that what reestablishes the correlation is the realization that if it continues, we have bigger things to worry about. Okay, that's an interesting thought there. Um, I guess it has to do, Michael, a lot with um, time horizons for investors. So you're basically, I was in London um, until a few days ago speaking to friends and clients in the hedge fund industry, macro hedge funds. And actually there was one client that put up a thought pretty similar to yours that said, you know, here it's either a death by a thousand cuts or it's a pretty vicious systemic event like a breakup of the repo market or a total distress in the treasury markets. And so at that point, I actually want to be long. And that's actually a good point, I, I think. The problem I have with that is a little bit of a time inconsistency issue because uh, getting long before a systemic risk event is generally speaking that gap risk. How does an investor manage that gap risk if he wants to follow your thought? Okay, so, but let's talk about that, that idea of a systemic risk. You've already had a 2008-like move that has been systemic in the bond market. If you look at the Sharpe ratio on the AAA aggregate bond ETF as a proxy for the total bond market, AGG or BND, the Sharpe ratio this year for aggregate bonds 
is worse than the Sharpe ratio risk adjusted for the S&P in 2008. I mean, people are not understanding what's happened in the bond market. We already are in the systemic event, right? And by the way, you see that you know, it's like everyone talks about a Fed pivot. The, the, the Fed doesn't own the bond market. The bond market owns the Fed. The bond market will do the pivot, right? So I, I, I don't, I hear you on the idea that, you know, ideally you want to do it after the event has happened. My argument is that the event's already happened in the bond market. So all you need to have is some degree of stabilization in the bond market, at least for a moment in time to cause markets to go higher. You can still ultimately go lower, okay? But if you go lower on stocks, hopefully then, as you go lower this time around, treasuries again act as the safe haven, right? But you need to have this, it's always about path, not prediction, right? How does it play out, not the end point? That's my contention. The path has been, in terms of treasuries and equities, the capitulation, because you've never had this kind of a sequence before as a standalone and then combined together so maybe it's time to start betting that it's not going to be like that, at least for a moment in time. Michael, we've seen how Bank of England has been forced into action, basically, in the gilts market as a consequence of the absolute mayhem in the uh, long end of the yield curve in, in, in sterling. Could you um, imagine a similar scenario unfolding in the U.S. over the coming quarters? Yeah, it's the end of the world. That's why I'm so <laughs> bullish. It, it, because that's, that's the point. So it's like, first of all, look... The, there's never just one cockroach in a hotel, right? So to think that this is isolated to just the UK is nonsense because we don't see the mark-to-market losses that all kinds of other institutions are having with this, right? So that's why I go back to it. It's like people are underestimating how serious this is when you think about that as an example, which everyone else is probably going through, you're just not hearing or, or, or thinking about it. So again, I go back to how can you win with that? You can't, all right? So... Look, I, I am cynical of those in power. The one thing that we know in terms of the history of central banks, the Fed in particular, is that they are very creative at preventing creative destruction. Okay, so we don't know what the ultimate response is going to be, not just by them, but by all the other central banks to try to counter something which would cause all those bankers to be out of a job, the end of the bond market, right? So you're probably gonna have some kind of coordinated action at some point from other central banks, not even the Fed, which could at least stop the bleeding, the speed, right? And this is the other thing too. It's like people say, well, you know, rates have to rise until uh, it's above inflation. It's like, did we forget that there are lags, that CPI is lagging, that the CPI we're seeing is from interest rates from months ago? We, we could already be well past inflation. We could actually be talking about disinflation or maybe even outright deflation a year from now at these current rates. So, Michael... If you think of the Fed reaction function to what's going to come, and let's assume that for some reason the bond market keeps its uh, current status without major distress. And I mean, distress, I mean that um, basically you can't pledge treasuries in repo. You have to be charged massively to do that. And you have, you know, pretty dysfunctional bond market. We haven't seen that yet. We have seen massive drawdowns and you're right about that. On a volatility adjusted basis, very, very large but you can still trade pretty decent size in the bond market. Um, so, and, and you can pledge in repo, nothing bad is happening from that perspective. Let's say that this remains, but let's say that inflation, as you seem to, to suggest, slows down over the next few months. Where do you think is the bar for the Federal Reserve to pivot their stunts, assuming there is no systemic event in the bond market? Yeah, it's like the, um, 
the definition of profanity, right? I'll know it when I hear it, right? I don't know what the actual number or circumstance would be. Look, I, I one thing which has kept the Fed hawkish is the fact that credit spreads, for the most part, have been still relatively contained, right? Meaning the high yield has not really blown out in a massive way like you see in major pivots relative to the safe collateral, which is treasuries, right? This has been largely a duration sell-off, not a credit spread sell-off, right? So if you end up having that credit spread blowout, which would suggest that you have mass bankruptcies getting potentially repriced back into the bond market, that probably forces the Fed to, at some point, change course. But again, I would go back to that would be the bond market telling the Fed to, to change course. The bond market owns the Fed, right? So that's why I think this is probably going to be a prolonged bear market because you haven't really seen that yet. One thing is for me to argue for a melt-up because it's the end of the world because government bonds are the source of risk, right? That's, that's tail risk, which is the tail risk of all tail risks, right? A systemic reset because government bonds act more volatile than all the collateral around it. The other tail risk is still credit spread widening. I blow out in junk debt, right? Which I think will still come. And that's consistent with what you tend to see in housing bear markets, in real recessions, and in real times of pivots, right? But first you have to cut off the real systemic reset tail risk, which you can only do with the safe collateral suddenly acting at least relatively more stable. If you look at, say, comparable scenarios in history, um, with similar style of drawdowns in uh, in bonds. Um, I know we only have a very few outliers in history to look at. At, at, at which <laughs> a few? At which point does it make sense to go long risk assets? I, I mean, how close to the actual complete meltdown in bond markets does it make sense to go long risk risk assets? I think, I mean, again, it's, it's, I know when I when I hear it, the, the one thing that tops and bottoms, at least short term, have in common is overconfidence. Everyone being convinced that it's going to keep on going higher or it's going to keep on going lower. And I can see it. I can see it on Twitter. I can see it in conversations that I have. And I go back to the path this year, the percentage of weeks that I mentioned for the SP, percentage of weeks for treasuries. It's conditioned people to be overconfident because it's all recency bias, right? So I look at that, I say to myself, okay, interesting. Nobody seems to be of the opinion that you could have a massive run in risk assets just because bonds could stabilize. Okay. But then on top of that, everything I do is quant-oriented. It's based on back-tested relationships. Let's go back to the correlation point. Lumber has been a weak all year, risk off. Oddly enough, my ETFs have been correct in their idea of being defensive, but wrong in their execution because treasuries acted more volatile than equities. Okay. But lumber looks like it's stabilizing, starting to now turn back up as we're speaking. Utilities, you know, three, four weeks ago from this conversation, they lost 20% suddenly. They were outperforming the entire year. Tip, it's not my opinion. I, I wrote a paper in 2014 that won the Dow Award from the CMT Association. Going back to 1926, utilities are a leading indicator of volatility of risk on, risk off. Meaning when they're weak, that tends to mean you're in a risk on environment. Right? It's not just sort of the argument that, oh, now there's competition with higher yields. It's more than that, all right? So the fact that you now have leading indicators, which have been leading and saying risk off the bulk of the year, now turning, at the same time, everyone seems to be overconfident that the most recent pass is going to continue, tells me the payout is higher betting against the crowd. And so happens the signals are confirming that. Michael, I 
one of the one of the most interesting papers so one of the the ones for which you're the most known about is the one about lumber and lumber to gold ratio as a, as a leading indicator which also makes me think about the housing market nowadays which is a topic of debate and a systemically important sector for the economy in the us my estimate it's that housing and housing related activities is roughly 18 to 20 percent of gdp and employment so it's pretty large as a contributor being a leverage sector probably uh, it's even more than that overall um, what's your take on number and the housing market so I, I think we share the similar view that housing is probably going to go through a prolonged mm. decline and it's probably going to look very different than what we saw with the 06 peak because you don't have the same shadow lending and you have institutions that are not forced sellers. But sure, you have to have housing probably go through a bear market. And if history is any guide, the economy is not going to exit a recession until the bear market and housing ends, which means we probably have lower lows and risk assets still to come, but not necessarily right here. Right. So I think housing, one thing is to talk about sort of the, the wiggles in between where lumber is suddenly, as I mentioned, looks like it's bottom might create some excitement for risk assets. But then the other dynamic is, yeah, you've got to bring affordability back in line, not just here, by the way, but globally, right? And it's hard to imagine new highs in equities until you've seen, you know, not necessarily new lows, but some meaningful lows in, in home affordability. Yeah. One thing I, I wanted to ask you about playing the devil's advocate here in, in terms of a possible melt up as a consequence of uh, this over pessimism, uh, if I may call it that, among fund managers is um, the relationship between retail behavior and fund managers behavior. Uh, I know that you run ETFs yourself, Michael, um, so you're probably very well aware of the dynamic that uh, if retail investors ask fund managers to sell, they are simply forced to sell, even though they're bearish already. What do you make of that dynamic into a potential uh, housing market downturn? Well, I, you know, it's funny because I look at the retail side, I see a lot of put option activity uh, more so than ever before. I, I'd say the, the sentiment on retail is less about funds because I think retail probably does their own do-it-yourself type of investing more so than, uh, than in history. Um, and you can see that primarily on the option side, the speculative nature of retail. So you're right. I mean, obviously, if, if you have a financial advisor that's managing separately managed accounts and their clients need capital because now they themselves are under a severe strain from higher costs of capital, yeah, that's going to cause at the margins of selling. By the way, on a side note, it's funny, right? It's like the same people that – I know you – I think you like to retweet this, uh, Andreas. The same people that are cheering about the bond market, it's like they have credit card debt. <laughs> you got to be real careful. Everybody wants to see, is more excited. Everybody wants to see a cleansing of the system, including me. But you don't want it to happen all at once, and you certainly don't want it to happen in your lifetime because it's painful, like we're seeing, right? Um, more of a side note, but I think you know people always have to be careful what they what they wish for when they think about this stuff. One thing is to think about it as a chart on a screen. Another thing is to think about how it impacts your day to day lives. And this bond market collapse. This spike in yield, I get it. It's due to inflation. Okay, that's fine. But the last thing you want is volatility in your budgeting. Yeah, it's a very fair point, Michael. Makes me think of the UK household sector. Um, roughly, in my estimates, 2 million UK mortgages need to be refinanced next year. Those have been locked at sub 2% on average. Now we're looking at 7% 7 mortgage rates as refinancing levels, 6 7%. I mean, it, this is a real impact on households' budget, especially if there are proper large size refinancings to be done. So 
it seems like we're talking about something that doesn't impact the listeners, but it does, even if they are not in the industry, as you correctly say. Michael, the name of the show is The Macro Trading Floor, so we like to blubber with you about macro narratives. It's always fun, but at some point we need to come up with a trade. So what's the trade? This is very binary in my view, in the short term, very binary in the sense that either bond market volatility persists, in which case nothing matters. And I'm sincere when I say that. Again, it's like you can show that 60-40 drawdowns have had you know big declines like what we've seen, although even that's questionable. I mean, there's a lot of data that shows that 60-40 really has never seen anything like this. But another thing is to, to say, well, how much leverage is there in the system against all that collateral which is collapsing? I keep going back to this point. There's over $300 trillion of government debt, and your safe collateral now is collapsing. That's, that's a, like a massive margin call that will never be met. So that's an end-of-the-world type of thing. So you talk about what's the trade. The trade is very simple. The trade is betting on continuation of the can being kicked which is not a very popular thing to want to see happen. But the reality is those in power want to stay in power. You can't stay in power if you have a system reset. That means stocks. That means the areas which have done the worst probably have a near-term relief rally. And by the way, that's consistent with every single bear market in history. What is amazing to me is people, I see this on Twitter all the time, they don't even seem to want to consider the possibility that you can see a 25, 30% move. That happened in 1930 before lower lows. There are plenty of times in massive, massive bear markets where you have these enormous runs that make it seem like the bear market's over. And it's not. So as a trade, if it's about the end of the world, the best thing to do is bet that it's not going to be the end of the world. So buy stocks. It's the argument that if you have nuclear war, you might as well buy stocks because if nuclear war happens, we're going to be dead anyway. It's the exact same argument today, right? Same argument I was making during the COVID collapse. Because it's like when, 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 when the Dow was going under 20,000, it's like you're worried about shorting at that point. If it's the end of the world, it doesn't matter. It might as well go long. This is that kind of moment to me. I could be totally wrong on that, but I really, I, I, again, I go back to path matters more than prediction. The path has been the anomaly this year. The path is so devastating to a highly levered system that it can't persist. Michael, uh, we always allow our guests an early exit option uh, on the trade suggested. And uh, you just said that you might be wrong. What could make you wrong? What could make the Fed lose control of the situation now? Look, I've made up this made this point before. The one thing that maybe they, they, that is still out there, I don't disagree with, but again, I think it's now been percolating for long enough that it probably won't happen, is a sovereign debt crisis because of the strong dollar. I've made that point for many, many months, right? That it looks like this sovereign debt crisis incoming, given the way the dollar's behaving. But again, the length of time that the dollar's been strong and the, the volatility, you'd think already something should have already broke on that. So I'm a little I'm a little wary of the idea that you have a sovereign debt crisis now because it's you, there's been enough time to see it coming, is kind of my point. But if it does, if you have some kind of emerging economy or foreign entity, whatever, that suddenly says we can't pay off these dollar-denominated debts, yeah, that's going to be a problem. Right? Then you probably do have another massive you know, wave lower. But again, I go back to that's still the end of the world. Michael, thanks for this very thought-provoking interview. It's the, the thing that comes to mind to define it. It was very interesting. If people want to find more about you, Michael, where can they do that? 
appreciate it. A lead lag report on Twitter is the main one. And the only thing I'm going to ask is please don't be a hater. Because unfortunately, there's a lot of those on Twitter. Yeah. And I think you've just found a few more haters after this interview. But uh, <laughs> fingers crossed for less hate on Twitter. Uh, I think we can all agree on that. Michael, thanks for joining us. We're all in this together, folks. It's like, you know, if you don't want to see the world end. You don't want to see Bonds and Stocks doing this. Be careful what you wish yeah. for. Stop slinging arrows. This is a very serious situation. We have to hope that we get out of this. We have to be optimistic. Progress comes from optimism. Thanks for being on the show, Michael. Appreciate it. Talk soon. So back on the macro trading floor, it's the 20th of October, 2022. The guest of the day was Michael Gayed. And Michael, who runs a couple of ETFs, um, is a portfolio manager. He came up with the bullish case, Andreas. Oh my God, that's new this year. He came up with a bullish case on, on stocks, on the S&P 500, especially, but any stock index, I think, will do the trick, which makes our life about implementation relatively simple. According to Michael, short term at least, um, we'll, we're going to see a relief rally, a bear market rally, or something that has to do with not the end of the world, basically, Andreas. And that's the summary of um, the trade. So line to you to talk about the rationale behind and what do you make of, of uh, his theory? Yeah, uh, I mean, if he's right, uh, you obviously just need to buy <laughs> the index on, on equities, more or less, uh, no matter where you look. <laughs> um, but I, I think there is another way of expressing it that could be interesting to just briefly touch upon before we move to the rationale. Um, there is this option strategy called the bullish collar. Um, which basically involves a simultaneous purchase of an uh, out-of-the-money call and uh, um, a sale of an out-of-the-money put option. Um, the reason why that makes sense, given his view, is that if we get that squeeze lower in risk assets, you basically have a uh, sold put in place at a level where you like to be long the index from. Uh, and I think that could be one way of expressing it without putting money on the table up front. Uh, but enough about that. Um, I guess I have a bit of sympathy for what he's saying, um, but the issue here is that I think he will eventually be proven right once we get that final capitulation move in risk assets. Um, and given what we've seen in real interest rates over the past, say, eight weeks, uh, my models have basically moved to a territory where I wouldn't rule out that we get a very brutal sell-off before we can start debating whether the correlation regime, whether the central bank regime, etc., can return to normal if we allow normal to be the past 20 years mm. or 10 years. Um, one way of, of, of showing uh, what I mean um, when it comes to equities versus real rates is to map the um, developments in earnings in, in either NASDAQ or S&P 500 versus the momentum in real rates. Uh, and you, you get a very neat, uh, almost linear correlation between the change in real rates over the quarter versus the change in earnings or the subsequent return in the following quarter in, uh, in equity markets. It's a pretty decent correlation. <laughs> and if you take the last observation, on real rates in the UK, 
I just mapped versus the UK equity market, then it basically tells you to expect the equity market at zero in three months. So obviously that's wrong. <laughs> um, but it, it looks kind of that way if you look at NASDAQ versus um, the change in real rate over the past 90 days in, uh, in the US as well. Uh, it hints of, say, a 50, 50% drawdown year over year, thereabout. Um, so I, I'm not saying that you could just use this kind of model linearly to the uh, extremes, but it kind of shows the direction, if you ask me. I think it's very tricky to buy into a sort of a reinstallment of usual correlations before it gets even worse than what we see right now. Yeah, so I think the correlation part of Michael was central to his thesis, and he effectively is talking about a re-establishment of that correlation that worked very well for levered trades, risk parity, 60-40 portfolios, any levered beta kind of portfolio. But I know that you have done some work on that. I looked at it as well in the past. Um, it's not the first time that that correlation breaks between the bond market and the stock market. And there is always one main reason why it does so, Andreas, which is when inflation and inflation expectation tend to be way outside an uncomfortable band for central bankers. So Tell me a bit about what did you see in your analysis there, and I can back it up with something that I looked up as well. Well, well I've, I've looked as far back as I can uh, in U.S. inflation history uh, relative to um, developments in the U.S. Treasury market and in the S&P 500, right? Uh, and the interesting thing is that there is a very clear threshold around, say, 37 to 4% in the core inflation measure. When we pass that from... Uh, the low side to the upside, uh, we usually get a breakdown of the correlation between the bond market and um, and the stock market, so the, a breakdown of the inverse correlation, right? Uh, so this whole idea that the treasury market will function as a risk um, safe haven uh, when the equities market sells off, uh, it doesn't work with core PCE above 4%. That's what's um, is, is, is guided by history. Uh, it also leads to um, value outperforming growth and stuff like that when you move above 4%. So it is a very important threshold for a lot of strategies. Um, and um, essentially, we passed that um, already. Yeah, was it late last year, right? Uh, so, I mean, this breakdown of correlations probably even happened a bit later than what it should have done. Um, which confused me a little bit because I looked into this already during the summer of 2021, as far as I remember, uh, when I called for core inflation above 4%. <laughs> I remember the two of us debating whether 4% was, was too much or, or too little at that time. <laughs> um, uh, a lot of water under the bridge since then. Uh, but, but, but no matter what, if you, if, you, um, if you want those, if you want a guarantee, let me put it like that, that these correlations will return, then we simply need to see inflation back in a range where, where a central bank can act with the same kind of reaction function as they had from 2008 to 2020. And they cannot do that with inflation running clearly right. above the target. That's correct. I still remember wildly losing a bet to you that core inflation in the US would have been, I think, above 3.5% was the strike of the bet. Wildly lost that bet to you. Uh, I think it was with December 21 or something. But anyway, you were totally uh, ahead of me. I thought the pressure would have taken longer to pop up, if at all, but it did. 
and the um, when it comes to the levels, Andres, I did a similar analysis and the correlations looking at inflation expectations because, I mean, policymakers care about long-term inflation expectations and, of course, short-term realized levels of inflation. And when it comes to forward inflation swaps, any meaningful period of time with those above 3% also the anchors this correlation pretty badly over, the, over history. The other thing that makes this correlation turn on, the other, on his head is um, liquidity events. Uh, margin calls, because in that case, as we have seen for the UK pension fund story, you just need to meet your margin calls with whatever asset you have. And in some cases, treasuries tend to be a very liquid, in most cases, tend to be a very liquid assets, and therefore you sell those first to meet margin calls, which means historical correlations are broken in case of liquidity events. But as you said, I can see some potential uh, liquidity events on the horizon. We have seen the UK pension fund, but, you know, with this so high levels of implied and realized both across asset classes. Interest rate derivatives are not the only derivatives. Total return swap on commodities, FX forwards, there is volatility everywhere. So in principle, there could be some liquidity events which could worsen this breakdown of correlations. And as you said, unless inflation slows down all the way to 3 3.5% very quickly, it's going to be hard to see this, neg this negative correlation restating itself. Yeah, and, and even if we take the case of Bank of England, um, they obviously sort of reinstated that inverse relationship between bonds and equities for a couple of days. Yeah. Uh, but they wanted to emphasize throughout this process that they, they could not sort of more permanently reinstate this correlation due to inflation running at 10%. I mean, that's, it's as simple as that. They cannot do it. Uh, because they have one mandate and one mandate only, and that's what they promised the population. That's what they promised politicians. That's they true. cannot act in this way as long as inflation is running eight percentage points above target. Yeah, and by the way, I think today was very interesting when it comes to potential liquidity events and margin calls that uh, ISDA um, has spoken to uh, European pension funds and regulators, came up as a, uh, you know, a middleman body, with an opinion, today there's a piece on the Financial Times about that, that if in Europe we want to avoid a potential scenario like the UK, what they suggest is that we effectively set up a standing repo facility between the ECB and pension funds, because that way pension funds can just post their Dutch bonds, German bonds, French bonds, whatever good collateral they own, immediately back to the central bank without needing middleman like like a commercial bank and a trader with his own balance sheet, his own constrictions, restrictions and willingness to back or not the pension fund by going directly through the central bank, they would avoid this problem. But the ECB should have to open his account to a non-bank, which has been historically a little bit of a problem. But it goes to show, Andreas, that people are getting worried about liquidity events popping up here and there, not only yeah. in the UK. But that would make the liquidity setup from the European Central Bank converge to what, what we uh, see in the uh, US Treasury market and the Federal yeah. Reserve, right? Uh, which I think is a good idea, to be honest. Yeah. Um, but let, let's see. I, I, I also wanted to, to briefly touch upon the European energy situation now that we talk about the European Central Bank, uh, because one, I think one of the reasons why we had a very material repricing of the European Central Bank in, into the uh, late summer and, and early September was that explosion in natural gas prices and electricity prices. Um, obviously, the European Central Bank had to sort of at least react to it when they saw inflation running that hot in, in a necessity like um, energy and electricity. Uh, they also know that spillover was large to other uh, components of the um, inflation basket when it gets this aggressive, the repricing of energy prices, right? 
we are almost back to square one <laughs> when it comes to gas prices and electricity yeah. prices. But I'm, I'm a bit um, hesitant to, just, uh, to celebrate just yet. The reason being, uh, and let me put this in, in a very um, uh, straightforward way, right about every European country mail-ordered natural gas as a consequence of the directive from the European Commission back in June. They were told by the European Commission to get storages full ahead of time. So they all bought LNG because of the lack of natural gas from Russia. LNG takes quite a while before it arrives, and now it arrives in, in portions that are too large to sort of uh, square up with demand, given that we have a very mild October across the board in Europe. Yeah. Uh, if we look at the weather forecast, and now I'm getting really into deep water here, <laughs> for the next couple of weeks, um, it still looks extremely mild in Europe. Um, and when I look at net injection data into storage facilities in Europe, it's still running at levels that are very unusual for, for the season of October, right? Uh, so we simply need to, um, to factor in a potential oversupply short term. Uh, and I mean, I've even been pondering whether we could get on very short-term futures prices below zero, <laughs> as we saw in, um, in, the, uh, in the oil market in the U.S. just after COVID arrived. Because, I mean, it's, it's, it's not easy to find new ways of storing natural gas short-term. Um, and, 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 and there is clearly an oversupply very, very short-term here. Turn on your eaters, fella. You heard meteorologist and macroanalyst Andreas Steno come up. But Andreas, I have to say, your public call for peak frenziness in the electricity and natural gas market was awesome. It was completely out of consensus, data-driven. It was great. And I have to say, your, your, your weather forecast skills were really the icing on the cake there. <laughs> um, one thing that I could add in relation to the price developments in, in Europe, um, and I was actually part of, of, of scripting the Danish um, liquidity package for uh, energy suppliers. Um, and, and I mean, the reason why we had such a premium in one-year forward contracts on natural gas TTF, uh, one-year forward contracts on electricity traded in, uh, in Europe, uh, was that uh, the liquidity risk was rising rapidly. Yeah. Um, as a consequence of sort of a snowball effect uh, in um, in August and September, and and once you've backstopped those liquidity risks with public money, um, that liquidity risk basically disappeared more or less overnight, and that's been a big part of it. So it's not only supply driven; it's also driven by liquidity risks. Yeah, that's uh, that's correct. Was also part of your assessment, Andreas. Um, before we go, we should remind people that the show is sponsored by our friends at Saxo Bank. So, uh, for instance, going long S&P 500, you can do that in a very simple way via ETS, via futures, via options, as Andreas already highlighted. But make sure to check uh, the Saxo trading platform. It's a very competitive one for many products. Where can they do that, Andreas? Well, you can uh, learn more at goto.saxo/macroetf. Uh, we will obviously uh, also post the link uh, below in the description on podcast apps and on uh, YouTube. And then uh, finally, if you want to go check out actionable trade ideas, um, actionable trade ideas as well, then you can uh, find um, good ideas in both uh, your Substack and in my Substack for the time being still, Elf, right? Let's uh, shill it out for a second. The macro compass over here and Steno signal over there for Mr. Steno. Is that correct? <laughs> yes. 
we will also post the descriptions, uh, sorry, the links in the description as well to those substacks. It's free, ladies and gentlemen. Anyway, uh, thanks for, uh, for listening to the show. It's been a pleasure, as always, Andreas, to host uh, the show with you and to talk to Michael Gayed. We will talk to you guys next Sunday.